Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Lots of animal news to report to you, and believe it or not, Santa Anita Park is back in the news. Yes, it continues, Lori. How are you today? Okay. Lots in the news. Uh, let's start with Santa Anita Park, that racetrack. And U.S. Senator Diane Feinstein, she has written a letter to the California Horse Racing Board chairman. His name is Chuck Winner, and she's calling for suspension of uh, racing and more investigation and more regulation of horse racing. She writes, the death of a single horse is a tragedy, but as a lifelong lover of horses, I'm appalled that almost two dozen horses have died in just four months. Later in her letter, she writes, there is currently legislation pending in Congress, the Horse Racing Integrity Act of 2019, H.R. 1754, that would attempt to address some of these animal welfare concerns with horse racing. I would appreciate your views on this legislation and whether additional provisions should be addressed to strengthen it. Da-da-da-da-da. Diane Feinstein. What do you think about that, Lori? You know, I'm glad this is getting her attention. Okay, I guess. Um, where has she been all along? I That's mean, there's true. not a lot new going on That's here. That's true. So to me, this is just a politician doing what a politician does. I think asking for more oversight on an inherently cruel activity is not going to be that helpful. And I just uh, think she doesn't really grasp the issues. And she's just an opportunistic politician here. so She doesn't, but maybe she'll help plant the seed in others yeah, and they'll I be mean, more I, mindful of what's going on in, I, these, in this industry. I acknowledge that and I'm hopeful, but not that optimistic about it. Where have you been, Senator? Peter, we have a lot of news items concerning food in the news this week, so let's start with this. As you might know, there's been numerous studies published showing that consuming processed meat products may increase your risk of breast cancer, colorectal cancer, and cardiovascular disease, and early death. And yet here is another one. New research from Loma Linda University indicates that consuming red and processed meat, even small amounts, is associated with higher risks of premature death, particularly from heart disease. The study was interesting because they looked at 7,900 Seventh-day Adventists, men and women, from the U.S. and Canada over an 11-year period. And they specifically studied the Adventists because many of them are vegetarian. And those who do consume meat consume it at a very low level. Low level meaning consuming about two ounces or less of red meat per day, which is a fairly small amount. So anyway, this allowed the researchers to study the effect of eating low levels of red and processed meat compared to not eating any meat at all. And in fact, the study indicated that eating red and processed meat is associated with a relatively higher risk of early death and particularly from heart disease. Just more evidence, Lori. Really interesting. And what a fascinating population to study. Right. Okay, here's one, Lori. In 2018, sales of milk, uh, dairy milk, fell by $1.1 billion. Wow. These are from statistics from the Dairy Farmers of America presented during their annual meeting, which is really incredible, people are consuming less milk. In reaction to this, the dairy industry is making efforts to own the term cheese and milk. They are even introducing uh, legislation to protect those terms. So you can't use the term almond milk or soy cheese? They are trying to prevent, even with the modifiers, the use of milk and cheese. Hmm. In 2016, there was a bill introduced called the, and this is great, the Defending Against Limitations and Replacements of Yogurt, Milk, and Cheese to Promote Regular Intake of Dairy Everyday Act. That was the name of the bill. Silly. They've reintroduced it as the Dairy Pride Act, which is uh, 
little easy to remember. Anyway, Michelle Simon, she's the executive director of the lobby group Plant-Based Food Association. Uh, she says that in an era of increasing innovation in the food industry, this legislation would send a chilling message chilling message to small and emerging businesses. The marketplace is rigged against you and in favor of large and powerful special interests. This mean-spirited bill would harm innovative plant-based food companies that are growing rapidly, providing new great tasting options to consumers. This bill would declare the free market dead with the promotion of protectionist policies pushed by dairy state politicians and their lobbyists, which I have to agree with most of that. The vegan dairy alternatives industry is worth about $17.3 billion, and it's predicted to go up by nearly double to about $30 billion in 2023. So the tides are shifting, aren't they, Lori? We haven't consumed dairy milk in decades. It just always seemed like a strange concept to consume milk from another species. I mean, humans are the only ones who consume the milk of another animal species meant to nourish their babies. I know, I know. It you seems know, strange. It is very strange. And once I became aware of it, once it dawned on me, and it's like makes complete sense. Why do you want to do that? It's sort of gross. It is gross. Peter, I see you have another food-related news item to report. Yes, I do. And if you are a kale eater, like I have become, I didn't used to eat kale, but then you've turned me on to it. It's very healthful, right? You and hated it, kale. I've acquired a taste for okay. it. Anyway, uh, unfortunately, there's bad news about kale this year. This comes from the Environmental Working Group. They go by EWG. Have you heard of them? That's a really interesting group, and I would invite listeners to go to their website and learn about what they do. If you're interested in what you're eating, particularly regarding uh, pesticides in your vegetables and fruits, every year they come out with a list of their Dirty Dozen, which is a guide to the most contaminated food products in the U.S. And surprisingly, out of nowhere, kale is now number three on the list of most contaminated fruits and vegetables wow. that you can get. The surprise to everybody because it did not appear on previous lists. The EWG found that 60% of their kale samples tested positive for the herbicide DCPA, which is marketed under Dacthal, D-A-C-T-H-A-L. This is a weed killer. And 30% of the samples contained bifenthrin and cypermethrin, which are two insecticides classified by the EPA as possible carcinogens. Now, you want to stay away from these contaminated foods because of a variety of health problems they've been linked to, including brain and nervous system problems, cancer, hormone disruption, and other problems. So let me take another moment and tell you what's on the Dirty Dozen this year. Okay, Lori? Shoot. Okay. So from worst, strawberries, spinach, kale, nectarines, apples, grapes, peaches, cherries, Pears, tomatoes, celery, potatoes. Wow, so disappointing. Yes, and so if you want to avoid these uh, pesticides and toxins, then you really want to buy organic versions of these foods. And not just washing carefully but does the trick. These are all washed when they test right. them. Right. So a lot wow. of these, it's just integrated into the food. So <sighs> washing will not help you. EWG also, fortunately, offers their most toxin-free foods each year. They call it the Clean 15. Okay. And they are avocados, sweet corn, pineapples, sweet peas, the frozen kind, onions, papayas, eggplant, asparagus, kiwis, cabbage, cauliflower, cantaloupes, broccoli, mushrooms, and honeydew melons. Okay, but we may run out of avocados in a few weeks. Yes, that's going to be tough to deal with, but we'll get by. <laughs> anyway, my final thought was that if you want to learn more about this, go to ewg.org. Okay, here's some news to report out of the state of Ohio. 
Now, as you know, there are state birds, state flags, state mammals, state reptiles, and even state pets or dogs. Well, shelter animals are now the official state pet of Ohio. Many states do have a state dog. For example, Alaska has the Malamute as its state dog. Massachusetts has the... Rat Terrier? (laughs) Boston Terrier, (laughs) named after the state capital, became the state's official dog in 1979. Massachusetts also adopted the tabby as its state cat. Pennsylvania's state dog is the Great Dane. So anyway, Ohio's state pet is now officially the shelter animal. This designation was to help raise awareness about all the wonderful cats and dogs available for adoption in the state's shelters. But just so you know, Ohio is not the first state to name shelter pets as their state pet. Back in 2015, we reported California's official state pet are shelter pets. And there's an official state pet status in Colorado, Georgia, Illinois, and Tennessee as well. And legislators in Texas and Oregon are now considering similar bills. All doing this for the purpose to help raise public awareness for shelter animals. And by the way, in Ohio, the state bird is the northern cardinal, the state mammal is the white-tailed deer, and the state insect is the ladybug. Thank you very much for (laughs) that. Okay, Lori, here is a good story. The USDA, they have stopped doing experiments on kittens. Finally. At a Maryland laboratory that was doing so-called food safety research. The U.S. Department of Agriculture announced it's going to end these experiments on kittens. After a bipartisan bill was filed last month, it's described the practice as taxpayer-funded kitten slaughter. They were studying toxoplasmosis, And our friends at White Coast Waste Project exposed the USDA secret 37-year-old kitten experimentation laboratory. Last year in May 2018, they used a Freedom of Information Act process, and then they launched a grassroots and lobbying campaign, which exposed over $22 million and information of 3,000 healthy kittens who were killed over the course of decades. Mm. Once Congress heard about this, they responded almost immediately and introduced the Bipartisan Kitten Act. It's good to have an acronym, and this is called Kittens in Traumatic Testing Ends Now Act, the Kitten Act. That was aimed to stop the practice of killing kittens after they were used in the testing. This news was so abhorrent that the laboratory just decided to stop their practice. So congratulations and thank you to everyone, especially those hardworking folks at White Coat Waste. Thank you. Okay, that's a great news story to end this segment with. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. 
It's true. People who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. In the United States, about 78 million people have high blood pressure. That's about one out of three individuals. High blood pressure puts people at risk for heart attacks, strokes, kidney disease, eye disease, and many other ailments. So definitely you want to know if you have high blood pressure so you can take action to normalize it. But that's enough about people. Let's talk about dogs and cats. Do dogs and cats get high blood pressure? And if they do, in what ways is it similar or dissimilar to the human kind? I'm pleased to welcome back to the show veterinary Robert Reed, who is medical director of VCA Ranch Mirage Animal Hospital. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. So, Robert, let's talk about blood pressure in dogs and cats. You know, we've had hundreds of vet visits over the years, and I can't remember a single time the blood pressure was measured. So do dogs and cats get high blood pressure? Well, yes, in fact, they do. And, and I think that the condition does a little bit parallel what goes on in people. It's probably only been about 20 years um, that veterinarians begin to recognize high blood pressure as a problem and some of the effects that it can have. And, and I think that uh, concern has just gradually increased in that, in that time. So it wouldn't be unusual, and in fact, it probably should be more routine for older pets, particularly cats, because they tend to be more affected than dogs to have their blood pressure checked during a regular exam, um, at least once a year, potentially twice a year. Again, depending on their overall condition, most high blood pressure in cats and in dogs develops as a result of another condition. Mm -hmm. It does occur as a primary disease, but it is not very common in that form. It's usually associated with something else, and it doesn't often have a specific symptom like in people. It, it just it's there. It contributes to the problem. It makes certain problems worse, but doesn't often appear as a particular symptom. It does, like people, like with people, tend to affect um, organs within the body that have a lot of blood flow, lots of small blood vessels, like the heart, um, the brain, or the nervous system, the eyes, and the kidneys. And, and in fact, the diseases that we see associated with hypertension tend to be associated with those organ systems. Robert, is it difficult to measure the blood pressure in a dog or cat? Does it require a special procedure? It does require a special procedure, but it's very similar to what's done in people. Uh, I think the one thing that may be more complicated with pets is that you know, a, a, a pet's anxiety level has a significant effect on their blood pressure and it's it's different it's more or less for some individuals than others but this is a particular challenge with cats because a lot of cats are stressed just by being at the veterinarian and if they're being 
handled or manipulated by one of the staff at a veterinary office, it tends to increase their stress level, and that increases the heart rate, which is certainly one of the factors that contributes to high blood pressure. So you have to be very patient in measuring the blood pressure and careful in how you do it to try to get an accurate reading. But it involves uh, using something akin to a blood pressure cuff and then measuring the systolic uh, flow as it squirts by? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we use little cuffs. They're just oh, like cute. the ones that people use, just really <laughs> small. And um, and we try to measure the, the systolic blood pressure. It's very hard to get the diastolic and, and therefore hard to get the mean blood pressure, but we're pretty good about getting the systolic blood pressure, and that's the more relevant in terms of how we address hypertension in cats particularly. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned that high blood pressure in dogs and cats is usually from something else in contrast to sort of the essential kind or primary kind of hypertension. What are the conditions in cats and dogs that uh, cause high blood pressure? The most common one by far is, is kidney disease, and this is particularly so in cats. But also um, hyperthyroidism, again, uh, more specific to cats. Uh, Hyperthyroidism, of course, is excess thyroid hormone. Diabetes can be associated with hypertension in cats and dogs. And adrenal gland diseases. Um, Sometimes even heart diseases, if the heart disease affects the heart rate or the volume of blood that's that's pushed into the system by the heart. So, Robert, once again, in our family, we are dealing with an older cat who has chronic renal disease. How is that related to high blood pressure, if at all? Well, it's in in a number of ways, actually. The, The kidneys are associated with the production of certain hormones that regulate blood pressure, and when they don't function properly, it uh, it's limits the body's ability to control uh, the blood pressure or to manage the blood pressure. And because blood pressure has uh, an effect on the perfusion of blood into the kidneys, the flow of the blood into the kidneys, then chronic high blood pressure actually contributes to the damage that occurs in the kidneys. And even further, because the kidneys are charged with filtering certain components of the blood out of the blood or or retaining them within the blood, and that requires a very small network of blood vessels that is easily damaged by changes in the blood pressure that's coming from the system. And all of that limits the kidney's ability to function properly, and it becomes a self-perpetuating problem. The kidneys aren't functioning properly they're unable to contribute to regulation of the blood pressure, and the changes in the blood pressure further contribute to the damage that's occurring in the kidneys. Yeah. So that might be an example of an instance where you need to use medication. You just can't fix these chronically failing kidneys. If you need to use medication in dogs and cats, what do you go to? We use the same medications that are used in people. We have kind of a smaller array of them that have been studied and used enough in dogs and cats to know their effect. But we use some of the same ones that are uh, mostly dilating the blood vessels, which affects the uh, pressure that the resistance of blood flow into the system and therefore has a direct effect on blood pressure. Robert, do dogs and cats have stroke-like events secondary to high blood pressure as humans can? You know, that's a good question, and and, and we're beginning to believe more and more that they can. A lot of our knowledge on this comes from improvements in imaging of the brain that's now being used in dogs and cats, and we're learning that damage can occur 
um, from effects like hypertension to the brain, and they are stroke-like in, in their effect. You know, dogs and cats aren't as obviously affected by people, and they can't communicate those effects um, to us as directly, but that doesn't mean they don't occur. Um, I think you just have to be on guard for any changes in neurologic function or confusion or uh, stuporous type behavior in an older cat or dog, and that might indicate that they've had an event that has caused injury to the brain. But yes, we do believe that hypertension can contribute to that. And you know, we're very interested in eyes in this household. Uh, how do eye problems in hypertensive dogs and cats manifest? Well, and you may be able to speak more directly to how it affects people, but in cats particularly, damage to the retina is probably the most recognizable symptom of hypertension. And in many cases, people don't even know their pet has hypertension until they suddenly lose their vision, mm. um, which is very upsetting for everyone involved. But fortunately, if we can correct the hypertension quickly, a lot of those cats will actually get their vision back. Well, that's good to know. Wait, me... Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Wow. But you have to get on it right quick. So yeah. if, some, if you notice your cat loses their vision quickly, and of course, most of the time you'll see a dilation of the eyes before you recognize that they're not seeing, then um, I would immediately have the blood pressure checked. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you very much. You're welcome. Great to talk to you. Okay, don't go away. More with the show right after the break. Back. Joining us again from Arizona State University's Canine Science Collaboratory is Professor Clive Wynn, who leads the lab, and today we are going to be discussing stress in dogs at shelters. Hi, Clive. Hi, Peter. You know, it seems logical that shelters are stressful environments for dogs, but do we know that to be true, and what are you aiming to uncover with this line of research? Oh, yes. It's been known for some time that life in, a, in an animal shelter is extremely stressful for dogs. Uh, you can see that in, the, in their behavior, but uh, it's also established there's a hormone called cortisol, which uh, the levels rise in the body when an individual is stressed, in us just as in our dogs. And it's, it's fairly easy to measure because it can be detected in an individual's urine. So if you just catch the pee, you can then uh, freeze that and take it to a laboratory and have it analyzed. So we certainly know that dogs in shelters are stressed. Um, my students and I, particularly Lisa Gunter, have been, have been looking at this from a couple of points of view. Uh, basically, what can we do to reduce the stress of dogs in shelters? That's the, that's the ultimate goal. Obviously, it's, it's cruel to subject dogs to, to stress if we can avoid it. And it probably contributes to the unattractive behaviors that dogs in shelters produce that make them less attractive to potential adopters. So we know that dogs uh, the way dogs act becomes less and less attractive to potential adopters the longer they stay in the shelter. And uh, that's probably due to the buildup of stress that they experience. Describe the uh, completed study where the dogs were given a single night away from the shelter. Sure. So we had the good fortune to get some assistance from Maddie's fund, 
who provided us with the resources to look into what happens when dogs go away from the shelter for one night. Uh, people call this overnight fostering. And a number of shelters around the country do this now. And uh, my students spend a summer going around the country catching the urine from as many dogs as they could so that uh, the cortisol levels could be analyzed before, during, and after these sleepovers. And what they found was that the time away does lead to a clear reduction in stress, but it also does bounce back when the dogs return to the shelter. So, so we found that the one night away is definitely helpful. Uh, it definitely gives the dogs some respite from the stress of being in the shelter, but it doesn't lead to any long-term improvements. And now, as part of a much larger project also supported by Maddie's Fund, uh, we are enrolling shelters around the country and we're looking now not just at these short overnight fostering opportunities, but longer fostering opportunities and also shorter outings where the dogs might just go out on a sort of a day trip to some environment away from the shelter. So we're looking at all these different ways of getting dogs out of the shelters to see how they might reduce the dog's stress and also potentially improve their behavior uh, because ultimately the goal is to get the dogs into a human home, into a lasting relationship with a human family. And if we can find ways of getting their behavior to be more attractive to potential adopters, then that's how they will, how they will get into a home. And you're thinking that stress or whatever is indicated by the elevated cortisol that could uh, interfere with the dog's behavior when they're being assessed by uh, potential adopters or even by the staff? Yes. Well, uh, you know, uh, stress, uh, you know, we see this in our own species. We see this in ourselves. Stress certainly changes patterns of behavior. And, um, and some of the ways it does that are patterns of behavior that are less attractive to adopters. Um, Stressed dogs tend to perform a lot of repetitive behaviors, which are definitely turnoffs for anybody looking to adopt a dog. They don't want a dog that's pacing up and down or going around in circles or anything like that. So, so to some degree, we know this already, but we're digging deeper now so that we come to a richer understanding of how stress influences behavior. We're also looking at how stress influences behavior, and this was uh, supported by PetSmart Charities, because these, on the one hand, the cortisol analysis from urine, as, as physiological, as biological measurements go, it's relatively cheap and easy. It's relatively easy to capture urine. It's easier than taking a blood sample. And the chemical analysis is relatively inexpensive. But obviously, this is still quite an imposition. A shelter running its normal business is unlikely to have the spare personnel, the spare time, or the spare money to actually carry out cortisol analyses on the dogs that they're caring for. So another study, as I say, supported by PetSmart Charities that Lisa Gunter carried out as part of her dissertation, was to just take the cortisol, the cortisol measurements, and take video recordings of the dogs and see what were the dogs doing compared to their cortisol levels. So most people think they know what a happy dog looks like and likewise think they know what a sad or stressed dog looks like. And there's doubtless some truth in 
typical assessments like that. But there's no science behind it. So now with Lisa's assessment, we have a scientific analysis of the behaviors that indicate that a dog is highly stressed and the behaviors that indicate that a dog is less stressed. So one of the projects she and I are working on at the moment is to write up a checklist so that we can say to shelters, watch out for the dogs that do these three or four things. These dogs are in a bad place do something to change their environment, to cheer them up, maybe get them out on a fostering expedition or something like that. And that would then also lead us to be able to carry out research that would investigate different ways of improving the dog's behavior. So you are recruiting for this multi-center study uh, sites. Yes. How is that going? The last update I got was that it's actually going really well. And I think we are now fully subscribed, but I, I'm, I should have checked before you called. And so when this study is completed, what sort of information do you hope to have? So the purpose of this study is to find out the impact of these different forms of fostering or the, from, the, from the days out through to the longer, perhaps week-long uh, sleepovers in families. Uh, uh, we're hoping that longer fostering may actually have lasting benefits when the dog has to return to the shelter. We'll see how that plays out. I'm also interested, because so many shelters are in the project, I'm interested to see, we already know that dogs in different shelters experience different levels of stress. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to find out what kinds of practices in shelters lead to less stressed dogs and what kinds of practices lead to more stressed dogs. And I'm rather hoping that it doesn't turn out that the more money you spend, the less stressed the dogs are, if you see what I mean. I'm yeah. hoping we'll find that there are some cheap ways of reducing stress in the shelter. That would be a very positive outcome. And I'm wondering if you can comment on sleep. Do dogs need to sleep quietly overnight to reduce their stress? And I've always wondered about that. That's a great question. I should have remembered that on my own. So one thing, everybody who has, you know, my dog, how many hours a day does my dog sleep? We've never actually done an analysis on my dog, but it seems to me quite likely that she is sleeping 14, 16 plus hours a day. And uh, studies have been done showing that dogs sleep 60% of the daylight hours and then the study didn't include an analysis of nighttime hours but I think dogs are sleeping 80-90% of nighttime hours as well. So dogs do need a lot of sleep and we know that dogs in shelters are not getting anything like that much sleep. Uh, there was a study I believe it showed that dogs were only sleeping 40% of the 24-hour cycle. So one condition that we suspect is contributing to the substantial stress of dogs in shelters is they're just not getting enough sleep. Presumably, they keep each other awake with their barking and so on. And we know from our first study that when dogs go on, on fostering trips to our home, what is the most abiding thing that the foster parents notice about this dog that's staying the, with them for a day or two? They say the dog sleeps. So it seems quite likely that one of the major benefits of getting out of the shelter is that the dogs get more and better quality sleep. And that is something we really need to investigate in more detail. And what could shelters do to improve the possibilities for sleep in, in their kennels? 
Well, I'm sure our listeners are very grateful for the work you and your collaborators are putting out, and I want to thank you. Where can they learn more? My website is perhaps the easiest thing. If people can remember how to spell my name, they can find my website, clivewin.com. That's C-L-I-V-E-W-Y-N-N-E. Thank you so much for visiting with us, Dr. Wynn. Peter, my pleasure entirely. Thank you for thinking of me. Okay, stick around more after this break. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner with Animals Today. Today's Animals Today Minute is about giraffe hunting. Within the limitless grassy African plains lies the mighty giraffe, sharing its home with zebras, antelope, lions, cheetahs, and various other animals that make their home in the heart of Africa. These beautiful creatures face deforestation, agricultural conversion, and poaching. Their population has declined at least 40% over the past decade. Today, there are only approximately 80,000 giraffe left in the world. Giraffe numbers are shrinking, and their conservation status is vulnerable on the IUCN red list of threatened species, and the killing of these docile vegetarians continues. Besides the pressure of habitat loss, legal hunting and illegal poaching both occur. Giraffe trophy hunting tourism can be lucrative for the operators and can charge as much as $15,000 for a trip guaranteeing a kill. Illegal sport hunting is also reported to be prevalent. And poachers continue their own killing, seeking meat and coats primarily. Another factor contributing to the poaching crisis is the use of parts of the tail as a dowry to the fathers of prospective brides in certain cultures. The animals are literally being killed just to obtain the tail. And, as we've heard before, enforcement of wildlife protection laws is extremely challenging. So please check out the important work of Giraffe Conservation Foundation, African Wildlife Foundation, World Wildlife Foundation, and Wildlife Conservation Society to learn more and to see how you can help protect these gentle giants. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that was your Animals Today Minute. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Hey, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening to Animals Today. Not only can you find us on your radio dial, but you can also listen to the show by going to animalstodayradio.com, or you can subscribe to the Apple Podcast on iTunes. And remember to follow us on Facebook and join the conversation. Animals Today is brought to you by the animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. So most of us know to keep human medicines, right? Medicine meant for people away from our pets. Human medication can be toxic or even fatal if ingested by our animals. 
And I see this being probably more pertinent to dogs. Dogs tend to get into bottles and chew on things and might ingest what's in them or lick up a pill or two that happens to be lying on the bathroom floor. Anyway, dogs and cats can be sickened when they ingest medications meant for people. And this includes most human medicines, antidepressants, sleeping medications, pain medications, narcotics. NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, Advil, Motrin, Naproxen, which is in Aleve. Actually, according to the American Veterinary Medical Association, ibuprofen is the most common drug that pets eat, possibly because many of the pills are candy-coated. And ibuprofen can cause kidney failure and other medical conditions in pets. Well, according to a new report issued last week by the FDA, using pain relief cream on your body can put your cat at risk. Mm. So it's been reported that cats developed kidney failure and other cats died because they were exposed to a cream or lotion containing non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs. For example, one is called flurbiprofen. So it wasn't like these were cases of animal abuse. The owners didn't put the cream or lotion directly on their pets, but the owners were applying it to themselves, like to their neck and feet. Or in one case, a woman was using the cream for her sore muscles and her arthritic pain, and the animals were exposed to it. And you can see how this happens, right? The lotion's on your body, your cat's lying on your lap, or right where you applied your lotion, and it absorbs through your cat's skin. Or the lotion is still on your hands, and you're petting your cat, or they They clean or lick themselves or lick your skin where the lotion was applied and ingest it that way. Or the lotion on your body rubs off on the linens or furniture and your cat lies right there on the piece of furniture. So you you could see how there are many ways for your cat to be exposed to this medication. So be aware of this. And of course, visit your veterinarian if you notice any signs of lethargy, loss of appetite, vomiting, whatever. And I will tell you that this new warning reminds me of an interview I did a few years ago with veterinarian Serenu Lingretti. He was explaining a similar situation, a potentially dangerous situation to both your cats and dogs with hormone replacement therapy preparations made for humans. So you have these preparations, hormone replacement therapy, which are made into lotions or gels or even sprays. They're meant for humans and you apply directly to your skin for absorption but it can also absorb directly into your dog or cat's skin if they come in contact with it. So dog or cat's lying on your lap where you applied the lotion, or you're hugging or petting your pet, and the preparation rubs off onto them. Or the lotion gets onto the beddings where you and your pet sleep together, and it absorbs through their skin, or they lick it off and ingest it. And these hormones can be extremely toxic to your pet and even fatal. He was talking about how estrogens, especially, can increase your pet's risk of breast cancer and can even kill your pet. An early first sign might be hair loss, but boy, you really got to be careful. I can see this happening so easily, Peter. You know how Sky, one of our dogs, loves to lick any lotion, usually a moisturizing lotion, off my body. Yeah, yeah. And that Voltaren stuff, everyone is using that for aches and pains these days. It's so easy to obtain. It's inexpensive. I've used it before, and uh, it's everywhere. Yeah. Healthy Paws Pet Insurance reviewed all of their claims data and developed a report that details the most common pet conditions from last year. 
Now I'll tell you the most common claim for both cats and dogs combined is gastritis, meaning upset stomach, which was caused by eating something toxic or even by switching your pet's regular food suddenly. That was the combined data. So what's the top conditions that both dogs and cats have? Okay, so the top four common illnesses and accidents for dogs were skin issues at 22%, stomach issues at 16%, ear infections at 12%, and eye conditions at 8%. For cats, the four most common illnesses or accidents, stomach issues, 29%, urinary tract infections, 13%, skin conditions, 12%, and cancer, 12%. Lori, do we have pet insurance? No, are you kidding? I wish. I think we're uninsurable, actually. (laughs) Lori, I have a new report from Mm Rover.com. They always have a wealth of interesting information on their site. And uh, they pointed us in this direction. And it talks about the true cost of getting a puppy this year. A puppy. A puppy. Now, you know, don't go and buy a puppy. If you need to get a puppy, go adopt one that's been weaned, right? But if you're going to jump into that arena, you should know what you're getting into. They calculate an average of early one-time expenses to be $1,487 related to acquiring your young dog. That includes things like the adoption fee, spay and neuter surgery, microchip vaccination, equipment like collars, leashes, and food bowls, poop bags, stain and odor removing solutions. We have a lot of that around here, don't we? Uh, Toys, heartworm prevention, which is sort of expensive, crate in a bed, et cetera, et cetera. So you got to be prepared for that. Going forward, Rover says the average monthly expenses are nearly $153, a lot more than a lot of soon-to-be puppy parents budget for. That includes things like food, toys, treats, poop bags, and dental care. Interestingly, most people think that it should cost about $20 to $75 per month, but the actual costs are much higher. Hmm. Our actual costs are way higher than the actual, actual costs. So, I don't know. And the other main point made in this uh, survey is that there are three things people wish they knew before getting a puppy. First, how much it would change their lifestyle, which I have no sympathy for you if you can't envision what it's like to have a puppy. Number two would be the amount of attention a puppy needs. Same response to that. And number three... Uh, They wish they knew more information about the breed they picked, such as the common behaviors and quirks associated with that breed. So do your research, people. And that last point, you know, if you just find and go out. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Don't sneeze on my parade. Sorry. I mean, there's cat hair all over. That was definitely a cat hair induced sneeze. Oh, you blame the cats on everything. When our settings on a recording station get messed up, you say the cats did it by stepping on the buttons. The hair you found in the CD player, you say it's the cat hair. Well, I the pee markings on the bedroom carpet, you say it's cat pee. Well, I think I'm justified as evidence. Okay, please make your point. Hey, how about it bless you? Oh, yeah, I was shocked. (laughs) Okay, finish the point you were making. So, you know, if you just adopt a dog that's a little older, you'll know exactly the personality that you're getting. It doesn't have to be an old, a dog that's one. You know what kind of personality that dog has and how much they're going to need to be walked and whether they want to run around or just hang out. So there's no guesswork when you adopt a dog that's a little older. Anyway, that's enough for this survey. 
Okay, thanks for tuning into the show. This is Dr. Lori Kirscher. And I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet. The animals. The animals.